My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Kai Reimer Watts. Back in 2014, Plans were in the works for the People's Climate March, a major action in New York City with supporting actions around the world timed to correspond with one of the periodic United Nations conferences on climate change. At that point, Kai Reimer-Watts was actively involved in the Toronto chapter of the climate movement organization 350.org. The Toronto group mobilized several hundred people to make the trip via bus to New York to contribute to the hundreds of thousands that took the streets that day. About a dozen of the folks involved in the organizing in Toronto had either experience of or interest in filmmaking. Initially, they just wanted to document that one action, which was the largest climate-focused mobilization to that point in history, and to interview people from communities in the New York area that were part of making it happen but they emerged from the People's Climate March energized, and they wanted to turn the project into something larger. They fundraised just enough money to incorporate their own little production company and to pay for a tour across Canada and the United States. On that tour, they interviewed as wide a range of people as they could about climate change and about taking action. Faith leaders, academics, indigenous leaders, artists, politicians, and more. From more than a hundred hours of footage, they crafted a sharp one-hour film that goes through the threat that climate change poses, the important actions that so many people and so many communities are already taking, and the society-wide engagement that we're going to need if we want to build an effective response. The film, directed by Reimer Watts, was released in the fall of 2017 under the title Beyond Crisis. They crafted the film to maximize its utility as a movement-building intervention. For instance, even though aiming for a runtime of just an hour made the editing process more difficult, they did so to allow for more time after screenings for collective conversation. And, indeed, in the resources they've produced to promote the film, they have actively encouraged such conversation, and it has been part of most of the screenings so far. To date, the majority of screenings have taken place in Ontario, but some have happened as far afield as Hong Kong and England, and the current phase of the promotional work for the film is aimed at expanding the film's reach. For Reimer Watts, it was important to craft the overall narrative of the film such that it not only shows the gravity of the climate crisis, but the possibilities for meaningful action as well. That it actively encourages hope and action, rather than passive despair. Part of this involved focusing less on the sorts of positive but vastly inadequate individual consumption choices that are so often the go-to answers to what can I do from environmental media, and more on collective action, including collective efforts to organize and mobilize climate-focused social movements. It was also important to Reimer Watts to understand the film in terms of intervention into culture. Cultural change, he argues, is an important arena for responding to the climate crisis. 
While mobilizing to win specific short-term policy and spending victories can be tremendously important, long-term shifts in the culture are just as necessary, in part to undercut the possibility of backlash from reactionary demagogues along the lines of Donald Trump and Doug Ford, but also to create the conditions of possibility for more ambitious political wins down the road. This is so important to Reimer Watts and to some of the others involved in making the film that they've also founded a non-profit organization called the People's Climate Foundation focused on building a creative cultural response to climate change. I speak with Reimer Watts about climate change, about the documentary Beyond Crisis, and about building the kinds of collective responses that the world needs. My name is Kai Reimer Watts, and I started on this project years ago for what has become a feature documentary film called Beyond Crisis. Our tagline is it's a story of hope for a rapidly changing world. The entire intention behind this project is to communicate both the scale and the urgency of uh, response to climate change, that we really need to build a broader cultural response and that we can do that, that as communities, we can find both the resources and the courage to actually rise to this challenge. Looking to history, there's all kinds of examples to be inspired by of how movements have taken on monumental challenges head on. So that's really the foundation of our project. It grew out of the grassroots climate movement. Myself and other activists were engaged with, starting in Toronto, but then moving towards documenting mobilization events across Canada and down into the States as well. I taught high school some years ago in my early 20s and got assigned to teach a course on climate change to grade five students. I had a background as a visual artist when I entered into teaching, so I was aware of climate change. It was on my radar. I read about it in the news, but it wasn't something that I really deeply engaged with myself. However, through the process of teaching this course, I had to do a lot of my own research and far beyond what was actually required just for the students. And it really hit home for me. It really made me feel this profound sense that, you know, I can't just be passing this on as a burden for these young people to deal with in their own lives, that I have to do something that will make a more meaningful change. And so actually several years after that, I got out of teaching formally and started to get involved in local activism. So I joined a group called Toronto 350, a chapter of the organization 350.org, and was involved in divestment campaigning, variety of other campaigns, trying to get Harper out of office and trying to get the federal government to act more seriously. And this all kind of built its own momentum. And it happened to be was going back to 2013, that there was a program opening up at the University of Waterloo, a Master of Climate Change program, first of its kind in Canada. And I thought, you know what, I really am interested in this issue. I'm already deeply engaged within my community. So let's apply. Let's see what happens. I actually got into the program and spent a year studying this issue quite in depth, speaking to the film angle. I did my undergrad in fine arts. So I was really interested in, you know, here's all this quite profound information that we're dealing with, but there's only a dozen people in the program. 
how do we actually communicate this out to a much broader audience? So when I graduated and I was really looking for what to do next, filmmaking ended up being a logical combination, a tool that we can use that really, out of any art form, has the potential to reach a really vast audience. So right after I graduated, these things kind of happened just serendipitous in terms of the timing. The People's Climate March was being planned in New York in the fall of 2014. Is a global event, so there were solidarity events happening around the world, and the flagship was in New York. The group I was involved with, Toronto 350, organized several hundred people to be able to attend the main mobilization in New York and brought us all down by bus. In planning for that experience, we came together just organically, about a dozen of us who had some filmmaking background or an interest in filmmaking and wanted to document and help tell the story of this event. Nothing on this scale had happened before as a mass mobilization on climate. There were over 400,000 people on the streets of New York. It was far beyond what the original expectations were and representing a huge diversity of different concerns and interests. So I think that was very powerful to me just from a storytelling perspective. And it was an absolutely beautiful sea of people that were coming together to share their commitment to change right before a major United Nations climate summit. There was a lot of power in these types of events. I think sometimes they get trivialized, but I do believe that they have enormous power. They have power to change the social discourse. They have power to change the political discourse. And they really changed our own trajectory. Bringing it back to the film, we got tons of footage, both from the march itself and from interviewing communities around that area who are hosting events. And that became the fodder for Beyond Crisis. It set us going on a trajectory that I really couldn't have predicted at the time. We ended up fundraising in our community to support a cross-Canada and U.S. tour. In that, we interviewed people from coast to coast, from all kinds of different backgrounds, to try to bring in a diversity of voices around the need for action. That included everything from clean tech entrepreneurs, academics, faith leaders, indigenous leaders, artists, politicians, all of recognizing the need for action and sharing from their own perspective how they see that taking place. It took us some time to work through all of these narratives to try to build a solid overarching narrative. And what resulted is this message over five chapters that goes through both the intense challenge of climate change straight through to the society-wide engagement that we need to build an effective response. And I would say that the march that sparked it is still very much kind of the, the chorus of the film that just propels it forward and gives a sense that, you know what, for all the challenges we're facing today, we are building a global movement and that is ultimately going to be what solves this. Why did you and the other folks involved in the film feel that it was so important to focus on action and to be trying to work towards a narrative that conveys hope about climate change? There's a quote that 
I like to remind myself of from time to time, I believe by the author Barbara Kingsolver, which is that optimism is a moral choice. The reason I think that's an important quote, it relates to hope. There is so much that we can look at today, especially at the state, federal and provincial levels around the world, and specifically, say, Canada and the U.S., that is really disappointing on climate action, gives us genuine reason to be outraged and concerned. You can get motivated by that. That can be a motivating energy to say, this is what we don't want and we're going to push back against this. That's important in many cases. But we do need to couple that with a yes that can kind of sustain us over the long term and engage a broader audience in the vision of where we want to go. And sometimes creating that vision is actually harder. Right now, we are surrounded by symbols and very real physical structures of a fossil fuel-based economy that is telling us that this is the way our society operates, it's the way it works, and it's the way that it's going to be. And so you kind of just accept that reality and the inertia that goes with it because that's what's there. And I think one of the big challenges is to really communicate and make tangible a vision for an alternate reality and to make that really come across and be attractive. It's the idea of a push and pull. We need to push back against a fossil fuel industry that is destroying our future and the planet, but we also need to have something that pulls people so that they want to get engaged. So in the course of going across North America and talking to all of these different people, what were some of the specific instances of action that you found particularly interesting or inspiring? One, the community of the Lubicon Cree, which is unfortunately now surrounded by tar sands development and has been pushing back a lot against that. But they've also developed as a community kind of a yes to answer that no. So the no being we do not want all of our land exploited and devastated by the oil industry. The yes being we do want to bring clean energy into our community. And so their community, I believe, partnered with Bullfrog Power to bring a solar energy project into their community, which now powers their entire community. It's just a really powerful example of grassroots community-level ownership of these energy resources, which is a big shift that's possible with clean energy. Another story is in the South Bronx, where during an environmental justice tour around the People's Climate March, we interviewed the community there who were talking about the enormous impacts of Hurricane Sandy on their community and the fact that they were not prepared at all, at least in terms of being provided with resources to cope with or have some protection against these impacts. And then what they're doing to try to fight back. Part of this is pushing back against all of the extreme infrastructure that is, for example, powering New York and providing services to New York, but is located right in their communities. At the time when we spoke with them, there was a lot of mobilization around trying to prevent fossil fuel projects from happening in their community. 
Another that comes to mind that isn't featured in the film but was very powerful nonetheless is all of the anti-fracking mobilization that was happening on the East Coast in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. There was some really powerful stories and success stories that came out of that. A final one that I'll share, which is profiled, is the climate mobilization. This is an organization that is based primarily in the U.S., and they're not community-specific, but they are working very much at the local level with municipalities to pass legislation around building a climate emergency response. They've had some really tangible successes For example, Los Angeles has recently instituted a climate emergency department. I believe it's the first major city in North America to do this. And that is entirely due to the efforts of this organization, I think in partnership with the LEAP here in Canada. I think that gives a really nice grounding of some of the engagement that we managed to cover. Tell me more about the thinking that went into the process that took you from all of that raw footage to the final cut of the film. It's an immense challenge to try to boil down what was probably over 100 hours of footage into a compelling one-hour story. And we were very intentional about trying to keep the length to one hour, partly because that's a much more reasonable length for hosting dialogues after the film. If your film starts to get towards the one and a half, two hour mark, often your audience doesn't have a lot of energy necessarily to have an in-depth conversation and engagement event after. And that's really part of the point with this type of documentary. But to bring it down to that, it involved a lot of difficult decisions. We had to really grapple with what is the core story that we feel will both represent the movement well and also connect to a broad audience and bring this conversation into the mainstream and get it into universities, get it into high schools, churches, community centers. And all of that has been taking place now. So I think those intentions have been quite successful. There are many different ways to communicate around climate change. This is one way we chose to approach it through the lens of the need for collective action, which is, I think, really core to building a movement, the recognition that the sum is greater than its parts, and that to affect change on the scale of what we need, we need collective action. The individual matters, but ultimately it's going to be that social force that creates the change that we need. That's a pretty big overarching message in the film. A lot of environmental documentaries focus on, you know, here's the small scale change that you can take at the personal level, whether it's biking rather than driving or creating a more energy efficient household or all of these types of personal action. And those matter, but in the broad scheme of things, they are immensely dwarfed by the scale of climate change and can sometimes be used as an excuse for industry to say, hey, let's just put everything on the individual, even as they're operating within this fossil fuel economy and have highly constrained choices. 
rather than looking at the government policies and the corporate policies that are affecting our decisions. So I think it's very important to move it to the collective level. This is a problem that's been created through collective action, and it will be solved through collective action as well. How are you hoping that this film and the broader Beyond Crisis project have an impact out in the world? We launched officially in the fall of 2017, so last year, on the anniversary of the People's Climate March, and had a sold-out screening event at a local theatre here in Waterloo, and that really got us off to a powerful start. We've had around 50-plus screenings, many of which have been in southern Ontario, but that's also only what we're able to count and what has been reported to us. The intention is to really couple every screening with a community event. It's quite important, actually, right now for our culture to be hosting these kinds of dialogues. And that's something that not only volunteer groups should be doing, it's something that all of our businesses should be doing, it's something that our schools should be doing, it's something that our local governments should be doing as well. And so we have tried to position this film as a powerful tool to support those kind of dialogues and to be coupled with a broader event. We've had events as far abroad as the University of Hong Kong. In the UK recently, a grassroots group called Rising Up held several events alongside the film. More locally here at home, the Center for International Governance Innovation held a series of events. And we've been getting into a number of festivals as well. So we're starting to branch out to a more international audience and to tailor our marketing around that. That includes conversations with school boards, with nonprofit groups actually on very small island called Seychelles, with municipal government to host events around climate adaptation. And there's many, many other conversations in the works. Every day I'm trying to encourage and empower groups to host their own dialogues and to really see value in supporting arts-based engagement around climate change. In order to get the culture change that we're looking for, we need to use tools that will really resonate with our communities and with our culture. And arts-based activities are a huge part of that. That's actually so something I haven't mentioned yet. We founded a nonprofit called the People's Climate Foundation, which you can check out at peoplesclimatefoundation.org. And that is entirely around empowering a creative cultural response to climate change. Tell me more about why you think that cultural interventions and cultural change are important. What I would ground that in is that, you know, I'm speaking from here in Ontario, where we just elected the Conservative Party and Doug Ford to office provincially. In the U.S., of course, Donald Trump has been elected. A large part of who we elect to office is a reflection of at least some part of our culture that is not yet demanding enough of the change that we need and is not recognizing how these issues connect to their own lives. So I think that it's really important to look at what the cultural context is that is creating these outcomes. 
If you have a populace that is either really checked out from the issues that matter and apathetic or has completely misinformed about what these issues actually are and how they connect to their lives, then you're going to see that reflected in terms of who you elect to office. Culture change work is longer term. It's not generally the immediate quick results that perhaps we might be looking for. It can be, but it is really important work to set the stage for the support for climate solutions that we need. If you don't do that work, then you can elect parties to office that implement climate policies from the top down and then get booted out by the next government, again, as we have just seen here in Ontario. So in order to create solutions that will stick and that will see recurrent support, you need to have an understanding within culture of why they matter, of why they connect to people's everyday lives. And if that work isn't being done, then you're making those solutions really vulnerable to change and to being discarded at a whim. So the work is critical, not on an abstract level, but on a very tangible level, connecting that to people's lives. What would you tell someone who said to you, I'm really concerned about climate change, but I have no idea how to get involved? There are many, many ways to get involved. Some of those we list in our conversations kit, which comes along with the film. In any given community, especially larger cities, etc., if you look, you will find grassroots groups that are already active on many of these issues, and you'll be able to look into what their focus is and whether it resonates with your values and whether you'd like to connect with them and lend your support. I would also say that there is no action without conversation. In order to inform our steps forward, we need to start to really dialogue around some of these tough, complex issues in our communities. And that is something that anybody can do. With a little bit of effort, anyone can host a film screening at a community center, at their local library, at a university, even at their home and they can host conversation alongside of that. This is an incredibly important moment in history. When we go about our day-to-day lives, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of how profound it is, the time that we're living in, and how critical it is to engage. And I think we need to challenge ourselves to recognize that a lot of the benefits that we live with today in terms of human rights, as much as they may be under attack, are really hard fought for. They've been struggles that our ancestors put a huge amount of effort and energy into. And that today, building a livable future in the face of a massive threat is absolutely worth the fight. You have been listening to my interview with Kai Reimer-Watts, the director of a feature-length documentary film about climate change called Beyond Crisis. To learn more about it, go to beyondcrisisfilm.com, and please also check out the People's Climate Foundation at peoplesclimatefoundation.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.